Let's pray. Father, we come once more before your throne, and Lord, we ask that you would help us. Lord, we understand that it's the unfolding of your word that gives light to your people. And so we gather here now uh, so that we can see from your word light. And we pray, Lord, that we would hear, receive, understand these truths. And Father, that we would respond and be fruitful hearers. And we would do so all because of your glory. And Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. This morning, we come to the grand finale of the parable of the sower. Lord willing, this will be our conclusion uh, to this in-depth study of the parable of the sower. And I hope that it has been as fruitful and helpful to you as it has been uh, to me. One thing that has struck me is that, you know, this is an ancient parable, but it is so relevant and timely. It reminds us that what God has given us in His Word is sufficient. It's timeless. It extends beyond uh, generation after generation, extends beyond the original audience, and, and directly connects to us as well. Well, as we come to the conclusion, I want to just review quickly with you uh, about the lesson that we've identified in this parable. And the lesson as we've identified it is that responses to the gospel message are determined by the condition of the human heart. It's the condition of the heart that determines one's response to the gospel message. It's very simple, very basic but very profound and quickly and often forgotten by us. And there are two implications that flow out of this lesson that we've identified over the past few weeks. The first lesson is this. Since it's the condition of the heart that determines the response to the gospel, we understand that people will always, anytime we share the gospel, People will always respond in a variety of ways to the truth we declare. Some will reject the truth outright. They'll mock you, mock us for what they might see as antiquated views, narrow-minded positions. Others will superficially agree with you for a little while. They agree and walk alongside you until the pressures of life come. And when those pressures come, they get out. And they reject the message they say they believed, and they turn from Christ and prove themselves to be unbelievers. Still others will receive the message, at least initially, and they'll look very promising. It'll look like you've got yourself an authentic disciple of Christ. But in the end... Their unbridled love for the world will crowd out their love for Christ. And they'll ultimately turn from God in pursuit of the pleasures of this world. But then, by the grace of God, some people, by God's grace alone, will actually hear your message. And they'll respond to it 
in faith and repentance and persevere and prove themselves to be genuine disciples. All right, so those are the manifold responses that we can expect to receive as we share the gospel. And what we've seen is that these responses have almost nothing to do with the one who's preaching the message. If the message is proclaimed faithfully, that's, that's the concern of the sower. The message is proclaimed faithfully. If it's proclaimed faithfully, responses to that message have nothing to do with the messenger and everything to do with the one who receives the message. Our responsibility is to sow the seed and God takes care of the rest. So we've seen that the parable of the sower is really about vindicating the sowers. You and I, Jesus, those who proclaim the message. It's a vindication of them because it shifts the responsibility away from the teacher, the preacher, the discipler, and it puts the onus onto the one who is hearing the gospel proclaimed. So that's the first implication of this parable. It's a vindication of the sower. But then there's a second implication that we've sort of identified, and I haven't said it explicitly, but I want to do that now. And that's this. That we should all hear this parable from our Lord, and it should cause each of us to be on guard. This parable comes to us as Christians as a warning. A warning against all the dangers, pits, and snares that line the road to heaven. There's the danger of having a proud, hard, impenitent heart that leads to the outright rejection of the gospel. It's a kind of self-righteous, self-wise, self-centered thinking that exalts itself above everyone else, including God and His Word. It's a, it's a sort of me-centered, proud way of living that says, yeah, the Bible says this, but I like to think of it this way or that way. It, it does everything but submit itself to the Word of God. And so ultimately it rejects the Word. That's one danger. Another danger was the danger of superficiality in religion. It's the danger of emotionalism, of being pulled around and led by feelings rather than by the truth. And, and that's a constant snare for us. And we have to be constantly recalibrating our lives so that we're not being pulled around by the whim of our emotion, but we're fixed on the truth. And our feelings are following behind the capital T truth. And we have to constantly be recalibrating. Because you drift, I drift, we all drift into that sort of emotionalism. So it's a danger to be aware of. And then last week we saw that there was another set of dangers for the Christian. And this is the countless array of distractions that constantly buzz around you and demand your attention. It's like the young child who's pulling at your jacket saying, Daddy, 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 Daddy. That's constantly pulling you away from the one thing needful constantly tugging at you, constantly saying, hey, look over here, look over here. Constantly working to lure you in and pull your mind away from the truth, to divide it off of the Lord and to shift your focus from the one thing needful and onto worldly 
pursuits. And the danger of this last um, sort of distraction here is that these all start off so small. These distractions, they start off small, but they quickly grow up into great weeds that will crowd out your devotion to God. It's kind of like drifting. All of a sudden you look up and you think, how in the world did I get here? These little weeds grow up, and before you know it, you've been choked out by all the sort of shiny, flashy things in the world. Now, all of those are hazards on the way to heaven. And they're all around you, and they're constantly present. And when you think about all of the dangers, toils, and snares that the Christian has to sort of navigate on the road to heaven it can leave you asking, how in the world would anyone ever make it there? Right, given the dangers, given the difficulties, given the discouragements, how is anyone going to navigate all of this complexity, overcome the dangers in the world, and bear fruit in this life, and enjoy heaven in the next? How can any of us make it? Well, that's the natural question that leads us into our text. How does this little seed from the farmer's hand make its way into this fourth soil and bear such miraculous fruit? To put it another way, how can you, given the dangers and distractions that face you on every side, how can you bear fruit for the Lord, and prove to be genuine disciples of Christ. I hope, I really hope, and I believe, that this is a question of some interest to you. How can you persevere? How can you overcome the hurdles and bear fruit in this life and gain heaven in the next? That's the question I want us to answer as we look at Mark 4, verse 20. So why don't you stand with me uh, for the reading of God's Word, and then we'll jump into answering this question. I want to start in verse 1. And he began to teach again by the sea. And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 14, the sower, says Jesus, sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. Verse 16, in a similar way. These are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. 
Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those, verse 20, are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. Amen. You may be seated. So the question before us this morning that I hope to answer is this. How does this little seed from the farmer's hand make its way into this last soil, in verse 20, and bear such miraculous fruit? Why is it that this soil bears fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold, but the other three miscarry the seed and bear no fruit? Well, I want to answer that question from two perspectives. And we see both of these perspectives in this verse and actually in the whole parable. And we also see it in the parallel passages in Matthew and Luke. And the perspectives are these. The divine perspective and then the human perspective. So I want to answer the question from those two angles. The divine perspective and the human perspective. It's the vertical and the horizontal. The divine sovereign perspective and then the perspective of human responsibility. Both of these truths run through Scripture like railroad tracks. And both are always present theological realities. And our responsibility is not to reconcile them in this life, which reminds me of Charles Spurgeon's quip that he, has, he saw no need to reconcile friends. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility, they're not opposed. They are together. They are friends. They accomplish. I mean, it's theological reality. God is sovereign and we are responsible. So my target here is not to somehow unravel the mystery of that truth, but I just want to lay it before you as it stands in Scripture. And so I want to bring both of these perspectives out as we close out this parable. And hopefully this will be a challenge to you, an encouragement as we think about the divine perspective and also an an encouragement for you and an exhortation to you to fulfill your part, to do what God has called you to do. Okay? So we'll look at it from those two perspectives. First, though, let's think about the divine perspective. How did this soil in verse 20 end up bearing fruit? From the divine perspective. Well, answer number one. It bore fruit, at least initially, because it had been divinely prepared. Divine preparation. It bore fruit because it had been divinely prepared. Now, I want you to look at verse 20 with me, and I want you to see that this soil is called what? The good soil. And remember, The soil represents what? The human heart. So you could say that this fourth soil describes the good heart. Which is exactly what it's called in the parallel account in Luke 8.15. Listen to this. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. An honest 
and good heart. Now that may make the honest and good Calvinist a little uncomfortable. We don't typically think about the heart being honest and good. So let me, let me turn the knife a little bit and, and hope that you stick with me as I work through this. The phrase honest and good from Luke 8.15 actually refers to a heart that is virtuous and morally upright before God. It's a heart that is able to hear the Word of God with sincerity and to respond to the message with no pretense. So it's called a good heart because that's exactly what it is. It's a good, morally upright, receptive heart. Now, of course, the question is how? How does this heart become a honest and good heart? How does that happen? Well, we know that it didn't happen because the person was born that way. We understand that no one is born with a good heart. We understand that because of the fall of Adam and Eve, every one of us here and everyone in the world is born with a defective, perverse inner man. That means we don't think as we should. We don't feel about the truth as we should. And we don't live like we should. All of that is because our hearts are corrupt. If our hearts were right, we would always think properly according to truth. We would always have our feelings in perfect alignment with the truth. And we would always live according to God's command. But that is just not reality. In fact, Scripture says that everyone is born spiritually blind. And worse than that, actually, we're all born spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins and are by nature children of wrath and hostile, meaning that we hate the things of God by nature. It's Ephesians 2, 1-3. Just listen to Paul's assessment of human nature, of the human condition. Romans 3, verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth, or whose mouth, is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. So the question is this. How could anyone described in such depraved terminology as Scripture describes humanity, how could anyone go from having that kind of heart to having a good heart honest and upright heart that is ready to receive the gospel message. How does that happen? Well, you know how it happens. And the answer there is because of divine preparation. Divine preparation. God, in His sovereign grace and mercy, goes before the sower of the seed and works monergistically, unilaterally, to prepare the hearts of His people to receive the truth when it's proclaimed 
and to ultimately bear fruit. So let me explain that to you. God providentially tills up the soil of that heart through trials and difficulties, through allowing the sinner to experience the natural consequences of their sin, allowing them to get to the very bottom and get to the end of themselves, where they finally realize that the life they've been living, the way they've been thinking, the way they've been navigating the world doesn't work anymore. They understand that it's defective, that it, it isn't true to reality. They understand, finally, that they don't have the answers. They don't have the capacity to get themselves out of the trouble that they find themselves in. And so finally, because of God's providential pressure and hand and tilling up their heart, they finally come to the place where they throw themselves on the mercy of God. And at the same time, these pressures of life are coming on them. But at the same time, the Spirit of God according to John 16, has been at work in them to till up their heart by way of conviction. Their conscience has been going off. God has been working in them to demonstrate for them that they are sinners in need of something they can't provide on their own. And so whenever they finally hear the Gospel message, they listen to it and they hear it for the first time. And maybe it's actually for the thousandth time that they heard it, But now, because of God's divine preparation, they are ready to hear and respond. Now, all of a sudden, the gospel message makes sense to them. And all of that is because of God's divine preparation. In theological terms, we call this preparatory work, the work of regeneration. It's where God comes to the dead heart and gives it life. To stick with the parable of the sower... He comes to the barren, salt-infested soil of the natural human heart that is wicked by nature and hostile to God and the things of God. And He comes to that heart and He transforms it and He makes it into fertile soil. And this is all done by an act of sovereign grace. God alone is the one who can make any heart good and honest and ready to receive the message of the gospel without pretense, without guile. There's no showmanship here. There's no deceit. There's no manipulation. I'm not trying to just make you happy. I'm hearing the message and I understand its reality for the first time. And so to receive the message with an honest and upright heart is just to receive it with sincerity. That's the point. And the other soils, they have an agenda. Yeah, yeah, I'll believe your message. I just need a good friend. I like you. I'll believe your message so that I can get something out of you, so that I can get something from Jesus. The fourth soil has been divinely prepared so that it's honest and upright. It's good, meaning that it is functioning out of sincerity. It understands I'm a sinner and need a Savior. And the message you're proclaiming is the message that I need. And I've heard it my whole life, and now I finally understand it. And this is all that matters in all the world, and I will let go of everything, and I will follow this man, Jesus Christ. Now I hope that you see the miracle of that. I hope you do. Listen to this. If you are here this morning, 
and you really believe the gospel message, I hope that's most of you, then you have believed the message because God has radically transformed your heart. Your original heart would never have believed the gospel. Your original heart is like salt, gravel, infested soil. Never would any gospel seed have borne fruit. I love the, the, the poem, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for Lord that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee had thou not chosen me." Your heart would still be in a posture of refusing God had God not went before whoever it was that sowed the seed in your heart to prepare it and cause you to be born again. For you to believe the gospel, that is what had to happen. You had to be born again. You didn't just need a a little bit of a remodeling in your heart, you know, an inner renovation. You needed to be entirely reborn, John 3. You needed an entirely new heart that would carry with it new desires, new ambitions, and a new disposition of humility and submission to the Word of God. And God alone is the one who did that work in your heart. He goes before and He gives the requisite heart so that it will respond to His Word with faith and repentance. This is so clear throughout Scripture. This is so clear, but there's one place that it's especially clear, and that's Acts 16, 14. The Apostle Paul was preaching in Philippi, sowing the seed of the Word. And there was a woman in the audience whose name was Lydia. And the text says that as Paul was teaching, quote, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Acts 16, 14. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. That's what God does. He opens the heart so that it responds in faith to the message. And if you are here, and you have responded to the Word of God in faith, not a day goes by that you should not praise Him for that. You would never... You would never be here. You would never have the joy of Christ. You would never know Him. You would never have responded in faith and repentance had He not gone before you and caused you to be born again to a living hope. That's His work. So all of it is credited to Him. He he transforms the heart. Then He imputes into that heart the ability and the desire to respond to the Gospel. So, how, how did this soil, this seed in Mark 4.20, how does it bear fruit? Well, it's because the soil had been divinely prepared. That's always the case. So that's answer number one. But there's a second aspect to this that I want to show you. Not only was the soil divinely prepared, 
But God was also actively overseeing the production of this soil. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, of course, as a result of the divine preparation, this soil is good and healthy, and consequently, the end of verse 20, it bears fruit. 30, 60, and 100 fold. Now, that's extraordinary. We're not farmers, most of us. It doesn't fall on us as sort of surprising and shocking as it would have fallen upon uh, these folks who were part of an agrarian society. The normal production of a seed in the ancient world was a yield of 7.5 or 10, usually at best. Meaning that one seed sown would produce 10 edible pods. So one tomato seed, 10 tomatoes. Think that way. But in verse 20, the yield of this one seed planted in good soil, divinely prepared, is 30, 60, and 100 fold. That's a yield of 3,000, 6,000, and 10,000 percent. It's amazing. And everyone listening would have heard this and thought, what? What kind of seed are you dealing out here, Jesus? Now, this, is, this is amazing. This is supernatural. This is not the kind of thing that any human could ever have accomplished. God alone was the one who could give this kind of growth. So everyone would have got that. As a reminder for us, that when the seed of God's Word enters into divinely prepared soil and is empowered by the Spirit of God, the fruitfulness that results from that is always extraordinary. It's always extraordinary. And the reason for that extraordinary fruitfulness is because God is the one who oversees its production. God is the one who gets the credit for this kind of productivity. And I want to show you that also from John 15. So why don't you flip over to John 15 with me. So I understand. You're looking at verse Mark 4, verse 20, and thinking, what? Divine oversight, productivity. I'm not really tracking. Okay, so let me show you what I'm saying really from John 15. John 15, in verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is what? The vine dresser. So what's a vine dresser? It's a gardener, a farmer. I think King James says husbandman. That's a farmer. It's someone who oversees a field, a plant, in order that it will bear fruit. He weeds it, he waters it, he chases off the birds, he, he, he does what he has to do to keep this uh, garden, this vineyard, safe so that it flourishes because gardeners like to bear the fruit of their garden. Right? They like to harvest the fruit of their garden. So like any sane farmer, the father himself is the one who plants the seed. He's the one who divinely tills up the soil And He's the one who oversees the plants so that they bear fruit. So in verse 2, it says, Every branch in Me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. God is the one operative here. He's the one at work. He's the one making sure this 
branch that's in the vine that is Christ is bearing fruit. So he's after its fruitfulness. Do you see that? Now, why is the Father concerned about the fruitfulness of the branch? Well, because he's a sane gardener. I mean, this is what gardeners like. They like to harvest the fruit from their gardens. But really, verse 8 is the, the indicator. It's the, it's the tech verse that tells us why God does it this way. Verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. The Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So it's ultimately about the Father's glory demonstrated through the fruitfulness of each seed. That's what I'm arguing. The Father oversees, He divinely prepares the soil. He commissions a sower to sow the seed, to preach the message. He prepares the heart, commissions the gospel messenger, and then... As the gospel goes out, it lands in the good soil prepared by God, and God is the one who sovereignly oversees this little plant so that it will be fruitful. Why does He do it? Verse 8, because He gets glory in the supernatural fruitfulness of people like you and me. You could never respond to the message without His intervention, and you would never bear fruit without His constant oversight and care of your life. Sometimes I, I, I fear, I think rather, that some of us think that God the Father is against us. It's like He's working against our own fruitfulness. And that is not true at all. God's desire is that you would bear fruit and so prove to be His disciples. That's the reason, verse 16 of John 15, that Jesus appointed you as His follower. So that you would bear much fruit. Why? Well, it's not really about you. It's so that the Father gets all the glory. So that they look at you, everyone on the outside, they look at you and say, I know them, and they're like a 7.5 yield fruitfulness? How in the world are they producing like 80-fold here? Something weird is happening here. Something miraculous. And God is the reason for that. And God gets all the glory. So, how does this last little seed bear fruit in this fourth soil? Well, it does so because it was divinely prepared and because God was the one who oversaw its production. That's the divine perspective. Now, there are all sorts of ways we could talk more about the divine perspective, but those are two that I want to give you. Now, I want to look at it from another angle, and that is the angle of human responsibility. Clearly, Jesus is making a point in Mark 4, verse 20, that God is operative here in this supernatural fruitfulness. But at the same time, there's the reality of human responsibility that is clear in this passage and also in the parallel in Luke. So I want to give you a few reasons this soil bears fruit from the human perspective. Number one, this type of person or soil, this fourth soil, bears fruit because they hear the Word of God and keep on consuming it. Now, you don't see that in your English translation. So you have to listen to me very carefully in the next minute, okay? 
in Greek, there's a difference between the hearing that we see in verse, back in Mark 4, in verse 15, 16, and 18. Alright, so the word hearing occurs in verse 15, 16, and 18, and that's the first three soils. And then the word hearing again occurs in verse 20, but it occurs in a different tense. So the first three soils are said to hear in the aorist tense, which is sort of like the past. They heard the word. One and done. They heard it. But verse 20, the tense changes all of a sudden. And it changes to the present tense, which in this context refers to an ongoing, continual hearing of the word. They don't just hear it once and say, oh yeah, yeah, I get that. All right, what's the other? Let's go to the deeper stuff. No, they hear it once, and then they say, I've got to have more of that. And they hear it once, and they say, where can I learn more? They hear, and they keep on hearing. And this is contrasted with the careless, inattentive hearing of the other soils. These are people who hear and keep on hearing. Hearing. They need to be immersed in it. They need that because their entire heart attitude now is drawn to this Word of God. Right, you remember that, don't you? Where before it was like you picked up the Bible and dust flew off of it and you thought, why in the world do people read this thing? I remember that. And then all of a sudden, divine preparation, and the Lord oversees the Gospel, causes me to be born again, and all of a sudden... There is a hunger that is insatiable for the Word of God. This is characteristic of this fourth type of soil. They hear the Word, and then they can't get enough of it, and then they're driven to consume it. They're not just hearing because everyone else is hearing. It's a thing to do. They're not just filling up their lives with the distractions of every other soil. They are actually filling up their lives with the Word of God. They can't get enough. They listen to sermons while they drive. They listen to the Bible as they mow the yard. They meditate on Scripture as they walk the dog. They sing the truth of the Gospel all the time. These are the kind of people who suddenly, for some reason inexplicable to themselves, until they look to the Word, all of a sudden they have a love affair with the Word of God. And so they keep on hearing it. Now, do you have that? Do you have that drive to know God through His Word? Friends, if you do, that is divinely implanted. Praise God for that. However, you are the one who responds to that. right? God is the one who gives us a new heart, this hunger for the Word, but God is not going to read the Word for you. God's not going to listen to the Word for you, and God will not meditate on Scripture for you, and God will not memorize Scripture for you. You have a responsibility. So how does this seed, this soil, bear fruit? Well, because they have a hunger for the Word of God, and they respond to that hunger by taking in the Word. That's number one. Second, number two, this seed bears fruit from a human perspective because they accept the word, that's right in the middle of verse 20. They accept it. They hear the word of God and they actually accept it. 
as it truly is. It means they acknowledge the word of God to be correct and then respond to it accordingly. That's so simple. And we've already said that the cause of this acceptance, this understanding of the word is the preparatory work of God. And that's true and that's assumed here. But the emphasis in the text is actually on the exercise of the individual's will. They hear the word and then they respond to it with willful and willing submission. That's what it means to accept the word. God does not accept the word for them. They exercise their will and respond to the word of God accordingly. They believe, they accept the message, and they respond. I just want to reiterate that. God doesn't do that for them. God doesn't believe for them. He doesn't repent for them. That is not how things work. God calls the hearer who receives the message. He goes before them and He gives them a heart that wants Him and desires Him. And then He calls this recipient of the Word to exercise this newfound desire for Him and to hear the Word. And He gives them the ability to exercise their will and accept the Word of God. It's on them. He calls them to believe the message. That's faith. Faith is to hear the Word and not to call God a liar. That's faith. Faith is to believe God and refuse to call Him a liar. So God calls them to believe Him. And He calls them to repent. That means... You turn from your self-directed way of living and you come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what repentance is. You had your own way of living before. And all of a sudden, the Lord shows up and renovates your heart, causes you to be born again. You were on your own path, your own trajectory. And now God says, you must believe and you must turn from your self-directed way of living and follow my son and go where he goes. A repentance is simply following Christ. Turning from sin and turning to Christ. And so you live your life in the way that he directs. So from the human perspective then, this type of hearer in verse 20 bears fruit because they hear the word and they keep on hearing and also because they hear and accept the word responding to it in faith and repentance. Okay. Third, this type of hearer bears fruit from the human perspective because they hold fast to the Word of God. Now, in order for you to see that point, we have to go to the parallel account in Luke chapter 8. So flip with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 8. So this type of hearer bears fruit from the human perspective because they... Hold fast to the word of God. Luke chapter 8 verse 15 says this. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast. You see that? Now, notice what it doesn't say. These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart 
and God holds them fast. Now, does God hold us fast? Amen, he does. And we just sing about it, and it's wonderful to sing about that. However, this text does not say, and God holds them fast. It says, they hear the word with an honest and good heart, divinely prepared, and they hold it fast. They hold it fast. There's a single word in Greek, compound word, which means to continue to believe or adhere to something. It's to hold on tightly, to seize it and not let go. That characterizes this fourth soil. They hear the word and they hold it fast. Now, we could say from the divine perspective, God holds them fast. True. But remember, we already looked at the divine perspective. God holds you responsible for some of this. And here, God calls you and I to hold fast to His Word. Hebrews 3.6 uses the same language. We are to hold fast our confidence and hope firm until the end. Hold fast our confidence. Hebrews 10.23, the author says the same, uses the same word again. He exhorts the brothers and sisters this way. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. You hold fast and you don't waver because God is faithful. Right? The catalyst and the motivation for you holding tight to the Word is that God will never let His Word return void. He always upholds His Word. And His Word is true. You hold fast because God is faithful. And we'll come back to this, but look at the rest of verse 15. Luke 8, verse 15. Not only do you hold fat, they hold fast to it, but the end of verse 15 says that they bear fruit with what? Perseverance. They bear fruit with perseverance. It's another compound word, which literally means to bear under. It's the capacity to Hold out or bear up in the face of difficulties, challenges, and temptations. That's what it means to persevere. You hold up, to bear up under immense difficulty. And the ESV translates this as patience here, which is a reasonable translation elsewhere, but not really here, because think about the context. A little seed sown into this soil had to face all sorts of difficulties in order to actually bear fruit. They didn't just need to be patient. They're facing immense difficulty. The opposition of Satan, Mark 8, verse 5. The pressures of trials and the pressures of intense persecution, Mark 8, 6. Or Luke 8, 6, rather. And the spiritual dangers of worry, wealth, and earthly pleasures. These are all massive obstacles that have to be overcame if this soil, this person is going to be fruitful. And so each of these dangers, these pressures, these temptations have remarkable capacity to derail the follower of Christ from a human perspective. We know John 10, no one can pluck you out of the Father's hand. That's true, that's the divine perspective. Again, we're thinking about from the human perspective. All of these are dangers that chase the heels 
of the Christian. And so the Christian has to be on guard against them, and he has to be ready to endure and hold on and persevere whatever comes his way. Sure, he needs patience too. We all need patience. But the real issue in the con- this context is the commitment of the Christian and the willingness to press on under immense difficulty and to endure through it all. And Jesus said in Matthew seven fourteen, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. It's the word flibo. It's the word for pressure, difficulty. The, another way of translating that is the gate is narrow, but the way is constricting. It's like you're walking and, and it's getting tighter and tighter on you. The pressure is growing. And the true church, of course, has always known this. The gate is narrow. The way is hard. It's not easy. It's not smooth. We have need of endurance. We've Our, our forefathers in church history, those who have gone before us, they understood that. But I, I think this is something we seem to have forgotten in the 21st century. And maybe we've forgotten it because we're not reminded of it as much as we should be. But the reality of endurance and perseverance and what John Piper calls stick-to-itiveness, right, where you stay on the right track and you press on in spite of all the difficulties, that reality was commonplace in the church throughout history. In fact, in Acts 14, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were told, they decided after they had planted some churches, they decided to go back, circle back around to these churches so that, Acts 14, verse 22, they might do this. They might strengthen the souls of the disciples and encourage them to continue in the faith. That's another way of saying persevere. Continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. They went back to these churches because they realized maybe we forgot to tell them this, but they need to know it. They need to know that it's not all rainbows and butterflies moving forward. That the road ahead is full of dangers, toils, and snares. And, and I think maybe we forget this because we do live, in one sense, in a sea of comfort as Americans. We have all the conveniences. You know, life should be easy for us. Everything else seems to kind of come that way for us. But our Lord tells us that we should expect in this life joy, endless, I mean, remarkable joy, certainly true. But on the other hand, we should expect trouble and tribulation in this life. And I I will tell you, friend, you are the most vulnerable to these dangers when you forget that it's through many tribulations that you must enter the kingdom of God. If you think you're the exception and God has this little bubble around you and He's just going to keep you safe all the way to heaven while everyone else is kind of suffering, you've got another thing coming. And I would tell you, the Lord would tell you, that in this life you will have trouble. But... 
take heart. I have overcome the world. The writer of Hebrews put it this way, Hebrews 10, 36, for you have need of endurance. Same word that's used in Luke 8, 15. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Jesus said it this way. It's only the ones who endure to the end who will what? Be saved. Only those who endure to the end will be saved. That's very sobering. Now we know, John 10, we are in the Father's hands. He will not lose one of His sheep. You are safe. You were secure in the Lord's hand. But at the same time, the Lord prods you on by saying, look, if you don't press on and hold fast and endure, you will never make it. Only those who endure to the end will be saved. So, these are two characteristics. Holding fast, pressing on. Those are the things that the Christian needs to be marked by and that characterize this soil in verse 20. And it's, it's the human responsibility dimension of it all. It's kind of a, a grittiness about it, right? It's tenacity, it's persistence, it's refusing to give up though you're not seeing the kind of fruit you want to see in your life. It's refusing to give up though your, your disciple is still struggling to do what you want him to do. It's refusing to give up though you keep failing in evangelism. It's refusing to quit, though your devotional life is dusty. It's pressing on when you don't feel like it because you understand that, first of all, God has given you a heart that loves Him. And you understand that He's overseeing you. And even when you feel so dry and dusty and stale, the truth has not changed. And you're not living by your feelings anyway, right? What are you living by? The truth of the Word of God. So you understand that. And so you say, I don't feel this good this morning. I wish I was more fruitful. I wish I had more disciples. I wish my children were this or that. I wish my grandchildren were this or that. But I'm going to press on and follow the Lord because I love Him. I love Him. And I understand that it's only those who endure to the end who will spend eternity with Him. So, how how does this seed bear fruit? Well, it bears fruit because despite all the odds, God, by His grace, upholds it. In spite of all the failures, discouragement, it presses on, that individual presses on and holds fast to the Word of God. And somehow, somehow, at the end of their life, this Christian who's responded to the Gospel is able to look back on all they've come through and and they're forced to ask, how in the world did I hang on so long? I remember John Piper was asked, it was like his 60th birthday or something, and he was asked, what surprises you most about your ministry at 60 years old? And his answer was shocking. You know what he said? What surprises me most is that I'm still a Christian. This is a man who understands the dangers, toils, and snares. You understand that 
the odds of you making it through from a human perspective are so low because the dangers are so high. But you also understand that while you sometimes are hanging you know, by your weak fingertips to the ledge of God's grace, He is right there holding you up as you give it all you got. Right? So you persevere and you press on and you never give up because you understand that God has been gracious and God is committed to you as a soil to committed to you that you bear fruit so that He gets glory and He promises to keep you until the end. That's the divine perspective. But humanly speaking, friends, we've got work to do. There is work to be done. We need to take in the Word, certainly. We need to fill our hearts with it. We need to constantly be bringing our lives under the subjection to the Word of God. We need to cling to this book and we need to persevere in obedience. That's on all of us. So, my prayer is that the Lord would help us all to remember the divine perspective, rejoice in it, sing about it, celebrate it, rest in it. But to come down from that and to be propelled by that divine reality to greater and greater obedience to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You Thank You that You have saved us and caused us to be born again to a living hope. We could never have saved ourselves. We could have never worked up within our heart the kind of faith and dedication and repentance that's required to be pleasing to You. But Father, we know and we praise You because we know You are the One who has worked so powerfully within our hearts so that we are fruit bearing Christians. And we know you get all the glory for that. But Father, we understand also that you have put within us a drive and a hunger for your word and to be pleasing to you. And our prayer this morning, Lord, as we end this study of the parable of the sower is really twofold. One, that we would be faithful sowers of the seed. We would carry out our end, our responsibility, trusting that you go before and you work during our evangelistic Uh, endeavors to give new hearts to open the eyes of the blind and father we also pray that you would help us personally as we press on to become holier to become more conformed to the image of christ lord that you would infuse our good resolves with your grace and help us to persevere in obedience to hold fast to the word to be consumed by the scriptures and to live steadily underneath this book. And Lord, we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.